you can turn to Isaiah 61. That's where we're going to be today. Um, I love the book of Isaiah. It's just filled with prophecy. And prophecy holds a special place in my heart. Bible prophecy does because um, I just passed a milestone. I didn't realize it until Mary and I were talking actually this morning. But um, this fall was 50 years since I picked up a book on Bible prophecy off a book rack in a Stucky's truck stop on the way back from Denver. And I began reading it, and through that book, The Lake Great Planet Earth, I saw the gospel and I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Fifty years ago, it's just amazing to me. And I can tell you, uh, this is a personal testimony, I have not regretted one minute since that time. Not one minute of my life. I really feel like that's when I first started living, to be honest with you. So Isaiah 61, I'd just like to read a portion to you. Uh, This is all about Bible prophecy, and it's a wonderful text. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate this season upon us, the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, um, there were multitudes of prophecies concerning his first advent, just as there are multitudes of prophecies about his second coming. And Father... We are so blessed to be able to have the perspective that we have knowing that he came to earth just as he was prophesied. And we can trace his life through the Gospels and how many of those prophecies were filled, fulfilled, uh, just literally fulfilled. Um, and Father, it will be no different in the second coming. Let us take much encouragement uh, from these words of Isaiah, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the prophecy is just everywhere in the Bible. One man described prophecy as history written in advance. And the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. The end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, and truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I've planned it, surely I will do it. Now, there are two important things that we can get just from that one little text. God declares the end from the beginning, it shows that he is all-knowing. He, he sees the whole ball of wax. And he understands the end from the beginning because he's the one that put it all in place. He easily writes history 
in advance. But secondly, in the last portion of that text, it says this. It provides an example of how God knows the future real clearly because he says, a man of his purpose from a far country will come about. Now, you need to do a little studying, a little digging for that, but that is none other than Cyrus, the Persian monarch, that Yahweh prophesied he would use to deliver the Israelites from the Babylonian captivity of 70 years. Now, this great prophecy found in the book of Isaiah, and it says of Cyrus, uh, in Isaiah 44, it says this of Cyrus, plays a big part here, Isaiah 44, verse 28 says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he'll perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and the temple, your foundations will be laid. And thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. That prediction about Cyrus was made 200 years before Cyrus was ever born. Isaiah didn't even know who Cyrus was. He was just doing God's bidding and prophesying about Cyrus. 200 years before this king was ever born, he was prophesied to do certain things. A careful study of this part of Isaiah, where these words are found, will show that they are linked to the challenge of Yahweh and a declaration that he does know the end from the beginning in naming an unborn king and knowing that his work would be done, a work that he proposed to do, it demonstrates he knows the future. The great Jewish historian Josephus, you might have heard of him, informs us that when Cyrus found his name in the book of Isaiah, written 200 years before his birth, an earnest desire laid hold upon him to fulfill what was written. The Spirit of God was using this pagan king to do his calling. Now, the beginning of the book of Ezra gives a proclamation of Cyrus concerning the temple. You see, this is after the Babylonian captivity, after Jerusalem was decimated and the temple was torn down. And um, in the book of Ezra, we see Cyrus and what he does with the temple. When the prophet Isaiah received the message, which contained the name of the Persian king, he wrote it down faithfully, even though he didn't even know who Cyrus was. And two centuries later, Cyrus appears and issues a proclamation that allowed the Jews to leave Babylonian captivity, go back to Jerusalem, and reestablish the foundations of the temple, just as Isaiah prophesied. It's staggering when you think about it. Out of the 216 chapters in the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ. Okay? If we were to omit all the prophetic passages, we'd have to remove one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament. We'd have to skip 23 of the 27 New Testament books that mention prophecy. For every prediction about the birth of Christ, there are eight about his second coming. <laughs> Sometimes they're mixed right together. Given prophecy's prominence in Scripture, there can be little doubt about its significance to our lives right now. I know it's had a significant part in my life. 
It changed me from going one direction to going another direction. It's been said that there are 20, uh, over 27% of the Bible is prophecy. And that there are at least 1,817 prophecies in the Old and New Testaments, half of which have already been fulfilled literally. Literally. Yeah, we're so myopic, you know. I mean, we live like right now. And it's hard for us to grasp that things were said that would come to pass, foretold, hundreds of years before it actually happened, right? It's hard for us to grasp that. Why? Because we live like right now. I mean, who can remember? There's a war in Ukraine. You guys remember that? (laughs) You don't hear much about that now because the war in Israel has taken over our attention now. We're just like right here. But this is true. 1,817 prophecies in the Old and New Testaments, half of which have been fulfilled already. Prophecies in the Bible can be broken up into two general types of prophecies. There are fulfilled prophecies, as I just mentioned, and those that haven't been fulfilled yet. That's pretty obvious, right? Fulfilled prophecies are such prophecies as those that are foretold of Messiah's coming, or Cyrus, okay? But Messiah's coming, Micah 5, 2, something we're all familiar with. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. A clear prophecy of Israel's Messiah who was set to come. And then in Matthew 2, 1, seven centuries later, we read, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Jesus was born. Okay? Joseph went up from Galilee to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, and Mary brought forth her firstborn son, named Jesus, Messiah. Seven centuries. Second type of prophecy is prophecy yet to be fulfilled. One such simple example would be the 1,000-year reign of Jesus who will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem as seen in Revelation chapter 20. This truth derived through a hermeneutical method. Hermeneutics is just, just use the word method, a way of interpreting the Bible. And the way that I utilize to interpret the Bible and the way I think is best suited to understanding what the Bible means is a literal, historical, and grammatical approach to interpretation. Now, there's so much here, people. I'm giving you background. You've got to have a little bit of background before I get to Isaiah 61 so that you've got some foundation underneath which to understand what I'm going to be saying in Isaiah 61. Literal. By literal, I mean according to the plain meaning of the words in the Bible, the perspicuity of Scripture, the the clarity that the Bible has built within it. You can understand the Bible. The plain meaning of the words, but not ignoring literary devices such as metaphors and idioms and parables and figures of speech. By historical, I mean according to the historical context of the passage in which you're reading. That's a historical aspect. And then the grammatical, I mean according to the meaning of the words, the grammar, and the syntax, the way the sentence structure 
of a passage flows. Oftentimes, God will put what he really wants to emphasize at the front end of a verse. You need to know that to know that he's really specifying something that is very important. And it might read a little bit um, a little bit wooden to see it written like that, but that's trying to reflect the original language that was written. Old Testament was in Hebrew, New Testament is Aramaic and Greek. These things are so important. This approach seeks to take the scriptures literally unless there's some reason in the context not to take it literally. Like in, in Revelation, it says, you know, the, the men's faces were like horses. Well, that little phrase, were like, it's, a, it, it's comparing. So the men didn't have faces that were horses' faces. They were like horses' faces. What is that like? I don't know. But I deviate. Scriptures you take literally unless there's a reason not to. Well, a non-literal allegorical approach to interpretation of prophecy, such as covenantalists would use, okay? Covenantalists, I talked all about that last week, so you gotta go back and listen to that sermon. Such as covenantalists would use, they, they interpret prophecy differently, and it leads to a subjective interpretation because they allegorize or spiritualize the meaning of words. They have no warrant to do that, and... <laughs> There's really no cohesion to it. And the literal approach, while a literal approach leads to a more consistent interpretation and an objective interpretation, the allegorical or spiritualizing of the interpretation leads to a very subjective understanding of what the scriptures are. Now, when it comes to Christmas and the life-altering hope contained in the fulfillment of prophecy about Christ's first advent, the data is almost overwhelming. It's estimated that there are over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled literally by Jesus at his first coming. And let me point out that just a couple that he fulfilled and that only Jesus could fulfill as the Jewish Messiah. Only Christ could have fulfilled these things. The first one. The first prophecy mentioned in Scripture is Jesus' first coming in Genesis 3.15. It shows that he would be born the seed of a woman. That's odd. Normally, it is the seed of a man, isn't it? But Genesis 3.15, the first blush of the gospel. And then in Isaiah 53, known as the Messianic prophecy chapter, one that is not read by Jews since they know it refers to Jesus, I remember John MacArthur talking to a well-known Jewish commentator. Um, has something called the wire or something. I don't, anyways. He said, yeah, they always use that one on us. Okay? He just didn't listen to them. They don't want to hear it. It's their scripture. It's the Old Testament. They would not call it the Old Testament. They call it their Bible. Right? Didn't want to hear it. There, the suffering and death of Messiah is given in such detail. And Jesus' death, when you read about it in the Gospels, it's just, it matches those details. You also see it in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. It's a perfect, a perfect introduction to Isaiah 53. And then Psalm 22 also is very graphic in prophesying how Messiah would suffer and die And those prophecies were fulfilled literally. And honestly, um, 
Judaism doesn't have an answer for that right now because their Messiah has not yet come. They're still rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. Now, over three times as many prophecies will be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which I believe is going to be very, very soon. And it behooves us to make sure we're right with God. And that's why I'm preaching what I'll be preaching today. Right now, I'm just giving you backfill. I want you to have something to have a foundation. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of his first coming literally. So why would we think that his second coming is not going to be fulfilled in a literal fashion? All the prophecies of his first advent were made hundreds of years prior to their literal fulfillment of the birth of Christ. And for these Sundays in Advent, which we're in now, you see we've got two candles burning. We're moving towards Christmas. And I'm going to be talking from Isaiah. And I I just have come here because there's such amazing hope that he brought with his prophecies. Just a bit about prophets, okay? Bear with me. Can you bear with me? I mean, I mean, you pay me to do this, right? So I want to give you your, your, your payments worth, okay? So there are some major prophets you need to understand. And Isaiah is one of them. Isaiah prophesied to Israel, God's people, 100 years before the Babylonian captivity. They went to Babylon for 70 years. Israel, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. Temple was destroyed, right? He preached and warned God's people 100 years before that captivity. And he stressed the importance of divine government. When I use that term divine government, it's just Jesus is Lord. God is divine. He's over all. He's sovereign. And they stress that. Written over 100 years before the Babylonian exile, he wrote to the same people as these other prophets that I'm going to talk about, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and so forth, okay? He ministered in the southern part of the divided kingdom, Judah. That's where, that's where Jerusalem was. And at the time of Isaiah, the people thought everything was just fine. He's preaching to people that were self-satisfied, totally content with themselves, thinking everything's going great. They felt good about themselves and their situation. But Isaiah, through God, saw things very differently. And he also foretold of a coming Messiah and his 1,000-year reign, the millennium. But he warned them, if you do not repent from your being self-satisfied and your contentedness with your mediocre spirituality, they were not worshiping God. We'll get to that in a moment. Not even close. But they thought everything was good. The boom's going to drop on you. And you're going to go into captivity. He warned them 100 years before. Now Jeremiah preached right before the captivity. And he stressed practices need to be harmonious with divine government because they were just not living religious lives that were in harmony with divine government. He came after Isaiah's time and during the last days of Judah's history... That's the southern kingdom. During the reign of the last five kings of Judah, Jeremiah saw the potential for exile to Babylonian captivity as imminent. He knew it was coming because they just hardened their hearts against the prophet's messages. Everything that Isaiah prophesied was now coming to fruition during Jeremiah's time. 
Jeremiah is referred to as a weeping prophet because he saw what was coming. Ezekiel, he preached during the captivity, okay? And he stressed the person of divine government, Messiah, the king. And Ezekiel prophesied to a group of exiles who were actually living in Babylon. And his message was more uh, hopeful than the other prophets. And rather than warning, (laughs) the hammer had already dropped. They were in captivity. And so his message was foretelling that there's a future so that they didn't completely go into utter despair. He, he tried to garner hope for them so that they would know towards the latter chapters of Ezekiel, he prophesied a lot about the glories of the coming kingdom, a kingdom Messiah would reign over. We call that the millennial kingdom. It hasn't come yet. It hasn't come yet. But Messiah came and they rejected him. Now finally, Daniel, my favorite by far, During the captivity, he preached during the captivity and up to its end, and he explained that divine government would be personal, perpetual, and forever. His name is Jesus Christ, that divine government. Now, this prophet was unique among the others in that Daniel, although he prophesied during the captivity like Ezekiel, he prophesied as a great leader within the pagan society, within the pagan society, and not as a captive, but as a leader within the system. He's a, uh, you read through Daniel, it's so funny, because he'll come to the foreground when there's a crisis, and then he just kind of fades back, and things just kind of take place, you know, and, and the people of God in exile get themselves in all sorts of problems, and, and then the, the, the pagan ruler says, Oh, how can we get out of this? And somebody says, oh, there's, there's this guy named Daniel. He's a prophet of God. And they'll call, call him out of retirement. And he'll come out and he'll spout his wisdom from God. And then he goes back in and you don't hear much about him. It's just amazing, the book of Daniel. He's like a bright shining light in the midst of a dark and crooked generation. He tells of the four great kingdoms of Babylon, where they were, but the one medial Persia coming, and then Greece, and then Rome, and then all the way to the end times. Daniel's lifetime literally spanned two of the great regimes, Babylonia and Medo-Persian empires. And Daniel was still around when Cyrus ruled Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. And he knew of Isaiah's prophecy about Cyrus and deduced that the 70-year captivity was about to come to an end. He was reading the prophets that had prophesied, and here Cyrus is born, and Cyrus, oh my gosh, Cyrus, I know where I saw that name. Isaiah talked about him. And, and also in Jeremiah 24, 11, it literally says that Israel The people of God will spend 70 years, it states it clearly, 70 years. And Daniel began to tabulate from the time that he went into captivity and Israel went into captivity and he said, oh my goodness, we're like on 69 and a half years. It's coming to a close here. You read the book of Daniel, you'll love it. It's a marvelous book. Now here's the value of prophecy. Why is all this important? Why did I do this background stuff. Because even in the midst of terribly dark days when Israel was under severe chastisement of God, exiled from their homeland, captive in a foreign land, God first went before them and established the prophets to warn them of their impending doom. This tells us something about God. 
He cares. And it's righteous and it's godly to warn of doom coming, just as we did to the Japanese during World War II before we bombed them. That was a righteous thing to do, just as Israel did with the people in Gaza Strip. They sent word ahead of time saying, we're coming in, go to the south, get out of North Gaza, we're coming in, we're coming in. They sent all sorts of leaflets and they sent warnings that they were coming in. That is a godly thing to do, a righteous thing to do. But Israel did not repent. And then even after their failure to repent, he sent them prophets in their in their captivity to encourage them of better days were coming. Don't despair completely. God is not true with you completely, even while they were in captivity. So anticipation of the coming Messiah brought them hope. They were, it was like a lifeline to them that God was not through with them yet. And so should the second coming of Jesus Christ be for us. Looks pretty bleak right now, I must admit. Looks pretty bleak right now. And the thing that's different from now and from the time 50 years ago when I first believed is it's global. And maybe it's because we've got such communication possibilities now that we see how global things are and how bad things are globally. I don't know, but it is global now. And I just really believe that we need to be looking to the heavens because he's near. He is very near. So, just stop and consider the magnitude of God's love and care for his people. He labored to warn them to repent and change their ways so they would not be led away into captivity first. But even when they were in captivity, he continued to use his prophets to comfort and encourage them even in their captivity. He foretold of a time when Messiah would come and rule in righteousness. Today, I want to look at Isaiah's prophecy found in Isaiah 61. And my intention is for this chapter or this context, this verse, to bring hope this Christmas season to even the most distraught who may be overwhelmed with everything negative in the world around us right now. I I once was really chastised by somebody in church that came up to me. They said, you know, Pastor, not everybody's happy about Christmas. I mean, some people really, really get depressed about things during Christmas time, and I'm thinking, this poor soul. I'm sure that was one of them, you know, and I just said, I'm sorry. I, I, I know there are some without hope and without God in the world, and I, I don't mean to be, you know, denigrating towards those people. I want to give them hope. Isaiah's words will bring a surge of divine hope to you if you receive them, but to receive them means that there are, there are uh, behaviors that follow that reception, it's not just an intellectual nod to the things that, that God wants to bring to you. You see, by extension, through the new covenant, even these promises that were originally to Israel, it's true, Isaiah was preaching to Israel, but even through the new covenant now, we who have been grafted in to the vine of Israel, okay, because we're Gentiles all, and we've been grafted in, we get to receive the blessings that he promised in Isaiah here. So let me just look at the very first verse of chapter 1 in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now this is the servant of the Lord. This is God's servant. 
Messiah. Okay? And he's singing a song, and he says, and this is my song, to bring good news to the afflicted. To bring good news to the afflicted. See, he's way better than I was, because I was just talking about all the joy and the happiness and everything. And he says that all that joy and happiness and everything that I was talking about, trying to get people excited about Christmas and everything, it comes to the afflicted. It comes to the afflicted. So for whom is this good news of Isaiah 61.1 meant for? It's, it's meant for the afflicted. And what does it mean to be afflicted? You've got to understand what, here's that grammar part, right, of our interpretation of the text. Well, afflicted can also be substituted with the English word poor. And the Hebrew word nav is translated into Greek in the Septuagint as tokos, which means poor. And that's the way it's translated many, many times. Over 80 times uh, that Greek translation is used in the Old Testament for this very same word afflicted. So when you think afflicted, think poor. You say, well, that doesn't help me a lot. Go a little bit further. Okay, I will. Thank you. Although it used to describe someone without financial resource, a a person who had to depend on others to support what they needed, there's a deeper spiritual meaning for this. We're not spiritualizing it. This is actually the honest meaning of the word in context. It's just a metaphorical meaning that Isaiah used in Isaiah 61. Metaphorically and spiritually, it describes a person who crouches or cowers, someone who is poverty-stricken, powerless to enrich themselves, okay? I mean, you think of an honest-to-goodness homeless person that is unable to get up and do for themselves, and they're on the streets. They have nothing and they have no future because they can't do anything for themselves. That's the afflicted. But we're talking spiritually. It pictures a person that has been brought into a state of need and dependence on something or someone outside of themselves. It pictures someone who is humble rather than someone who is proud and self-sufficient. Moses is the best Old Testament character to illustrate it. And in the New Testament, you've got Jesus the Messiah, talking about this kind of poorness in the Beatitudes when in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 3, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that, that is the honest meaning of this word afflicted in Isaiah, the poor in spirit. But Moses paints a beautiful example for us of the Old Testament picture of an afflicted one. Now Moses was miraculously preserved in that little ark that his mother made for him and taken into the courts of Pharaoh. He had the best education in the world, wealth, prosperity, everything was going his way. He was a man of power in word and deed, Acts 7.22 tells us. He's no slouch. He was a well-heeled man. He was wealthy, super educated, and at the top of his game. At 40, He went to his fellow Israelites to deliver them, thinking he'd be their salvation. He came of age and realized, hey, I've got something to offer. These people are my people, and they're in slavery. I'll I'll help them. But he was rejected and pushed away. You remember that encounter? Who made you? You know, prince over us, right? Didn't you just kill an Egyptian, which he had? And I love it. It says he looked this way and that. (laughs) Guilty as sin. He did. 
He thought he was going to deliver his people by killing an Egyptian. Disillusioned and afraid, he fled. And he went to a foreign land, Midian, and lived as an alien there. For 40 years, he lived in obscurity and deprivation, and he was being humbled, right? And then God came to him, appearing in a burning bush after 40 years in obscurity, and after 40 years away from all that he had in Egypt, after 40 years of humbling and softening, God came to Moses, and he called him to himself. He called him to go back to Egypt and to bring his people out. Now, after all that humbling and softening that God had been doing in 40 years of his life, his answer was, who am I? I have never been eloquent, neither recently or in time past. He's still hurt. He's still hurt. That rejection was still there. He still remembered his prideful attempt at serving God, but now he was a broken man. And he continued to tell God, I am slow of speech, I am slow of tongue. And Moses was finally poor in spirit. Okay? That's who receives the good news. Someone who is poor in spirit, such as Moses was, uh, the most meek among men, it says in the scripture. Did you know that Jesus once quoted Isaiah 61 passage that I just read to you? I want you to turn over to uh, Luke chapter 4. This is marvelous. Luke chapter 4, and why I like this is because it, it brings Isaiah's passage to us now, because we're a New Testament people. Okay? Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 19. And Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. There's that word, afflicted. The good news, gospel is eugelion, which means good news. The good news to the poor, the afflicted. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped right there. Now turn back to Isaiah 61, and you're going to see how precise Scripture is. Look at the prophecy in Isaiah 61. He talks all the way down to verse 2. He says, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's right where Jesus stopped, right? The reason he stopped there is because the next verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Okay? That is not what Jesus came to bring vengeance. He came to bring salvation but they rejected him. They rejected him. And it stops right there. So marvelous. Jesus brought Isaiah's prophecy right into our era, our time. And it shows the good news will only be received by those who see themselves as truly poor. Later in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and I used to love this because I grew up right here on the east side. Okay? I'm proud of it. I love my heritage. God has done a miracle. Okay? And I love this passage. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. 
For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The despised means those that are looked upon lightly, not given any any real thought to. And the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That's where blessing is. That's where the good news is received and takes effect. In a soul where no man may boast before God because you've been broken before him. You've come to the end of yourself. This is the good news. It's for those who are afflicted. Now, what qualifies that person? How do you get there? You see where this is going? On the one hand, there's great news. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It satisfies every need of the human heart. And Isaiah identifies this good news to be wrapped up in a person, a person who brings wonderful things into the life of the recipients. He, he will comfort all those who mourn, it says. He will give beauty instead of ashes. He is the oil of joy instead of mourning. He is the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. This is all in Isaiah 61. Okay? And Isaiah says, that is what Messiah would bring with him. He brings the answer to every burden the people of God might experience in their lives. And, and he is the fruition of hope for which every heart longs for you find your heart just craving for some peace? Boy, I did. I did. I was running as fast as I could in the opposite direction, looking for, for something that would just satisfy. And nothing, nothing satisfied it. Started my hard running at 16 years old. And by 19, he finally saved me, got a hold of me, pulled me up by the scruff of my neck, thank God. But the people in Judah did not hear a word of what Isaiah was saying. They didn't listen and neither were they warned because they would first have to admit that they were afflicted. And who wants to admit that they're afflicted? Who wants to come to grips with the fact that we don't have anything to bring to God? Nothing, nothing to bring to God to get us any credit with him, to make him turn his head to, toward us. You see, you have to be utterly dependent in order to receive that good news. For Israel, their material prosperity, which they had a lot of, okay, meant nothing to God at all, but it really meant a lot to them. And their political power and their national autonomy meant nothing to God, and that would soon dissolve right before their eyes when Nebuchadnezzar came in. And their superficial worship meant nothing to God, and soon their temple is going to be completely decimated. And their offering and celebration of holy days meant nothing to God, and even these would be set aside for 70 years. They, did not, they were not able to celebrate like they did in the temple. They were not able to offer sacrifices like they did during that 70-year period. Isaiah told the people of Judah that the good news was for the afflicted, the poor, the spiritually destitute, who had come to the realization that God didn't have mercy on them. If he didn't have mercy on them, they would perish. 
but they didn't humble themselves. So was this good news then only for the people at Isaiah's time? I kind of already answered that because of the Jesus' passage that he read in his hometown. It's no different today than it was in Isaiah's day. People everywhere desire the benefit of the good news. Everybody wants to have what those who are afflicted and have received the good news have. But just like Israel of old, they failed to understand that the one qualification necessary to receive the good news, instead, they do things. They do things. Trying to please God. Why do so many go to church around Christmas and Easter? Right? Two times. They come at Christmas and Easter. Why? Because they think that will do something with God. They think when they die, they're going to tell God, I I went to church on Christmas and Easter, religiously. Sorry, it ain't going to cut it. That won't work. If that's what you're depending on, come see me afterwards. We'll talk. They do things they believe will give them some credit with God. They they maybe give gifts to the church or, or maybe... Gifts to, you know, agencies that they feel will help people that need help. They they don't need help, but they just want to make sure. They attend services. Some even sing. Some even teach in church. And they do it with the motivation that somehow or other, God's going to look on that activity that they do, and they're going to gain some kind of standing with him. God says no. There is nothing you can do to gain standing with me. This may shock you. I don't know. They religiously do religious duties, believing that they'll count for something and offset their sinful lives and the rest of the week. Because I worked in a highly Islamic nation, Indonesia, um, largest uh, Muslim country in the world. It's, It's not an Islamic state, but it's the largest Muslim country in the world. And the Muslims used to always talk about the the balance, you know, that, that um, Allah will take their good works and balance them against their bad works, and if their good works exceed their bad works, everything's going to be fine. No. Because <laughs> our best works, God says, are filthy rags to him. They're like filthy rags. And, and just stop, just for a second, and lapse in the logic. If we could do anything to gain some credit with God to get into heaven, then what was all this stuff about Jesus? That he had to actually die on a cross, a horrible death, for us to pay for sins. That means nothing then, if we can get there somehow by doing something we think that God will care about. They do things hoping it will be noticed by others and by God, and that it will make a difference with God. They do everything but the one thing that God so clearly, uh, clearly told them. Humble yourselves. Give up. Empty your hands and come to him. Now the one thing that they don't do is the one thing that's necessary to receive the blessings of the good news. They don't up, own up to their own affliction. They have not come to the end of themselves yet where their pride is gone, their self-assurance is gone, and they stand empty-handed before God. You know, it's really scary to not have anything, (laughs) to be completely empty. But God's got to bring you there, or you'll never get in. And you've got to let him bring you there. 
You've got to let him point out your deficiency, which is 100% deficient. And that just goes right to the heart of your pride. Because we want to say we've got something of value and we have nothing of value to bring. To admit that they need someone to save them and that without such intervention, they'll be lost forever, they just are unwilling to do that. So here's how to open up to receive the good news of God, okay? I'm going to give you some tips here. Number one, take your focus away from yourself and put it on God and his good news. Jesus is the good news. Make him your first thought and your last before you go to sleep. Read his word, the Bible. Read the Bible. You say, I don't really understand it. I don't care. Just read it. He will bring you understanding. If you truly are seeking him and you truly want this good news that I'm talking about, read the Bible. Where? I don't care. Just start reading it. Some say start in John. I say start in Genesis. But just read the Bible and ask God to open your eyes. And read it every day. Surround yourself with his people. Keep coming to church. Be around God's people and the things of God and the ways of God. And you do, if you do this, you will enjoy his blessed presence because he's promised, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That is a promise from God. See, you're not going to get it by sitting at home and watching TV shows about religion. You need to jump in with both feet, take your hands off your life, and give it over to God and say, make me new. He will, believe me. Number two, root out your, of your life everything that builds up your sinful pride. <laughs> oh, Distance yourself from those who flatter you or falsely praise you. And there's a lot of people around like that. Intentionally step away from the things that cause people to notice you. Take the lowest seat. Do things behind the scenes so that God sees them and other people don't necessarily have to because it's evidence that you're seeking other people's approval rather than approval of God when you're, you're parading it in front of other people. Cease from finishing, or fishing for compliments. <laughs> you know how that goes, right? You kinda, some people are really good at that. They get other people to praise them. I don't know how that works. And feeling bad when you get unnoticed. Stop it. Recognize that you're worse than they could ever think. (laughs) Take such thoughts to the Lord and thank him that he sees your heart and knows your deep desires and he still loves you. He still loves you. Number three, practice not thinking about yourself more highly than you ought. This is intentionality. Pride will always look at others and commend itself. Pride always looks at others and commends itself. And here's how it manifests itself. It is always putting others down. Okay? If you have a propensity in your life to be talking about others and going, oh, I'm not even going to mention anything, but you know, you know what I mean when I say, oh. Okay? And, and, and you find that that's in your life a lot. That's pride. That's pride. If you struggle with anger... A proud person will find somebody that has raging fits of rage and it'll excuse their anger. 
if you struggle with pride, you'll find the peacock nearest to you and point to her to lessen your own vain strutting, right? There's always somebody that's got more pride than you have. But have Jesus as your object and your goal, and you'll see just how imperfect and far from perfection you really are. It'll humble us. That's why I say, focus on him. It'll drive you to God's mercy and repentance, and you'll know what it is to be afflicted and poor and spiritually destitute. Fourth, spend more time looking at other people's strengths and abilities, and intentionally, there's that word again, you have to do this. You have to make yourself do this. Intentionally congratulate and applaud them. Affirm others around you. Regard them better than yourself and even as more important than yourself and you will find it's from a true poorness of spirit that such an ability to praise others is even possible. Don't compare yourself with others. That's carnal. You don't know where they're at. All you see is the outside. Fifth and final, surrender your will to Christ and Christ alone. Whatever he asks of you, open up your hands. Thomas Watson, a Puritan that I love, said this, a castle that has long been besieged and is ready to be taken will deliver up on any terms to save their lives. He whose heart has been a garrison for the devil, when once God has brought him to the poverty of spirit that I've been talking about, and he sees himself damned without Christ, let God propose whatever he will, and he will readily agree to terms. That's you come to the end of yourself, and you're so desperate, you say, whatever, God. You're God, and I'm just a man. I'm just a woman. I'm just a child. Take me and do whatever you want with me. Taking my hands off my life completely. So there's no bargaining when the poverty of spirit is truly understood. And receive the good news that Jesus brings with him. And receive it this Christmas. Why not this Christmas? Or maybe if you've received it already and it's gotten kind of dull, you don't have that joy in your heart, you know sin is what robs us of joy. So seek out what that sin is and be honest with yourself. Confess it to the Lord and then walk away from it and let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for actually the good news, Father, the, the gospel. You know, it's, it's not unrealistic to say that we look at all those prophets in the Old Testament and we think, wow, that must have really been something. But Lord, every Sunday you have prophets and pulpits all across this land, all across the world that are proclaiming truths that make people to be warned that warn people to repent, that beg people to receive the good news. There are still prophets, Lord, and they're telling the truth of what has already been written. Oh, Father, let us receive it as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.